I want to start with a, a brief uh, comment by someone who I think really embodied in, in, his, in his statement in a very articulate, uh, wonderful way, what is the essential Jewish belief about Jerusalem, of the Jewish community as a whole. And that's uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, if you don't know, was the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom. I don't know for how many years. I didn't pay attention for many years. He's one of the most remarkable and brilliant uh, contemporary Jewish thinkers and writers and speakers and of our time. Uh, he now travels back and forth between New York and, and England, I think. Um, and uh, if you like hearing, if you like Torah study, that is, if you like hearing contemporary thoughts about Torah, you can sign up for his email thing. You get a Torah commentary every week in your email. That's always wonderful. And he's just the clearest, uh, one of the most remarkable, brilliant thinkers. And uh, his uh, talks, uh, which are many, are available on, he has his own, on his website, and he's got YouTube talks and things like that, because he's invited all over the world, because he's really quite remarkable. Um, I, I, don't, um, I don't always agree with his politics, but this is not about politics, although it is about politics, but this comment about Jerusalem. So when I read his comment about uh, the status of Jerusalem, I thought this really captures sort of the, the essential Jewish position about, about uh, Jerusalem. So I'm going to read it to you. Uh, Rabbi Sachs on the status of Jerusalem. I welcome today's decision, obviously it was a few days ago, by the United States to recognize as the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, whose name means city of peace. This recognition is an essential element in any lasting peace in the region. Unlike other guardians of the city, from the Romans to the Crusaders to Jordan between 1949 and 1967, Israel has protected the holy sites of all three Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and guaranteed access to them. Today, Jerusalem remains one of the few places in the Middle East where Jews, Christians, and Muslims are able to pray in freedom, security, and peace. The sustained denial in many parts of the world of the Jewish connection with Jerusalem is dishonest, unacceptable, and a key element in the refusal to recognize the Jewish people's right to exist in the land of their origins. Mentioned over 660 times in the Hebrew Bible, Jerusalem was the beating heart of Jewish faith more than a thousand years before the birth of Christianity and two and a half millennia before the birth of Islam. Since then... Though dispersed around the world, Jews never ceased to pray about Jerusalem, face Jerusalem, speak the language of Jerusalem, remember it at every wedding they celebrated, in every home they built, and at the high and holiest moments of the Jewish year. Outside the United Nations building in New York <clears throat> is a wall bearing the famous words of Isaiah, quote, He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. <coughs> Too often, the nations of the world forget the words that immediately precede these, which are, For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Those words spoken 27 centuries ago remain the greatest of all prayers for peace, and they remain humanity's best hope for peace in the Middle East and the world.
Rabbi Jonathan Zaks. I would say that pretty much captures a sort of traditional uh, Jewish approach and attitude, understanding of Jerusalem and its role in Jewish life, um, and um, gives you a sense of why so many, I have a list of them, not that you need to hear them, one Jewish organization after another, which after the announcement, not all, but one Jewish organization after another, uh, came out and uh, uh, thanked the president essentially for for stating uh, what for Jews has been the reality, which is simply that Jerusalem is the, the capital of Israel uh, and always was and always will be. Now, <clears throat> When I was reading this week about different people's reactions to the announcement, uh, and in a moment I'm going to give you a little history, which I haven't done yet, <clears throat> um, of Jerusalem itself, uh, I was struck by the difference between Jews, Palestinians, evangelical Christians, Muslims, unevangelical Christians, could, I suppose it could be there as well, in their attitudes and their approach and their motivations for their thoughts about and opinions about Jerusalem and its role and its status. And uh, let me just state what probably is the obvious, but in any event, I need to state it, which is not everybody agrees on the facts of world history. Not everybody agrees on literally, bless you, the facts of world history. Things that ought to be indisputable. You know, something happened or it didn't happen. Right? Not in the Middle East. So, for example, I was reading Al Jazeera, uh, an article in Al Jazeera about uh, the president's uh, announcement and in the course of this article <clears throat> about Jerusalem just in the middle of the article just talking it was a it was a relatively rational you know <clears throat> piece it wasn't a you know a, an over the top <clears throat> screaming piece of any kind it was it, it read very rationally and I noticed in the middle of the article in one sentence which uh, said Historically, Jerusalem was the capital of Palestine and went on and on in the middle of this article. And I'm reading that and thinking, where did that come from? What do you mean? Where historically was Jerusalem the capital of of a Palestine that sort of didn't exist as a state, as an entity in the way that we, um, we talk about the state of Israel or any... Uh, state and in the sense in which there is still hope for a quote two state solution in which there will be an official Palestine where they expect and hope that Jerusalem in some form will be their capital uh, and yet here's a statement that simply stated as a fact that you know in historically Jerusalem was the center of was the capital of Palestine <clears throat> and it reminded me of the which I'm sure all you know anyway but I like to state the obvious. It reminded me of uh, of uh, Yasser Arafat and his, I think, rather infamous 
comments about uh, Jerusalem uh, in the in the process of rejecting, you know, one uh, peace proposal after another uh, from Oslo, uh, the the attempts at negotiating all those with all those presidents who stepped up and tried to negotiate something. Um, his infamous statement that was just fact for him and evidently for uh, for this particular group that has an interest in Jerusalem, the Palestinians, which is there is no historical connection between the Jews and, and Israel and no historical connection between the Jews and Palestine and, and Jerusalem <clears throat> and all of those statements about there having been a temple built in Jerusalem are he didn't use this, but if he were alive today, he would just call it fake news. But that's essentially what he said. Just That's just something that was made up by 20th century Jews to justify their colonization of Palestine. Um, as And said that as if it was fact. And in my opinion, as far as I can tell, that truth is wholly believed by the majority of Palestinians and Muslims around the world. Thousands, the thousands who were who were demonstrating in Indonesia and the thousands who were demonstrating all over the world um, who literally believe their own version of history, uh, of the facts of history, which is that there is no such thing as a, as a connection between the Jewish people and and Jerusalem, and that it's all made up uh, as a modern-day political strategy in order to justify the oppression of uh, Palestinians by the current modern state of Israel. So, which is not my understanding of our relationship to Jerusalem uh, at all. And it's, but it does, uh, and we'll get to the evangelicals in a minute, because uh, it's my opinion that they are the reason that Trump said what he said. It wasn't, it wasn't us, even with Jared and even with all of the advisors that he has, the close personal advisors that he has uh, who happen to be Jewish um, and, and his own family. I believe it was the, the keeping the promise to the evangelicals uh, so I want to say something about them and their attitude about, which you may not know, about Israel and Jerusalem um, and that was the primary motivation for being able to chalk down another uh, kept promise uh, of his from the campaign. In the meantime, if, if you will, I'm going to share with you something uh, that I pulled together mostly from, uh, from a history that was compiled by an Israeli uh, writer in honor of Jerusalem Day, note, in honor of Jerusalem Day, which happens in Israel every year because of the role that Jerusalem has always historically played in the life of the Jewish people and in the history of the Jewish people. So uh, it begins like this. During its 6,000 years or so of history, 
Jerusalem has risen and fallen and risen and fallen and risen and fallen and grown and been destroyed over and over again. If you've ever been to Israel, if you've been to the old city of Jerusalem, if you've been to any of those underground uh, catacombs, one of the things that you notice is the entire city is like an archaeological dig, one layer after another 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 layer, because it's one civilization after the next civilization after the next, and the next war that came, and the next few hundred years, and the next few hundred years, and it's built up and built up and built up and built up, which is why you have to dig down and down to find the artifacts that they find because that's the nature of Jerusalem as sort of a crossroads in many ways over centuries of different um, conquerors who came through the Middle East. Um, uh, Jerusalem Day was a holiday instituted, in fact, by the Israeli government in 1968. Why in 1968? Because of the obvious, because in 1967, after the Six-Day War, it was unified for the first time uh, ever in, in, in a long time, certainly since the establishment of the State of Israel when, uh, when Jordan took over uh, the, the uh, east part of Jerusalem and the, the, uh, the old city and certainly the, uh, the West Wall and the important parts for Jews. And so they uh, established it as an annual celebration of the city's unification. So some 6,000 years ago, as best we can tell, uh, ancient people settled the hills around uh, uh, east of uh, Jerusalem's old city walls today because there was a spring there, which, you know, water is always the driving force of where anybody sets up any civilization. Look for the water and you'll find where they're going to set up a town because everybody needs water first. Uh, the city they founded remained as it was for centuries. It was kind of a hilltop agricultural backwater in the periphery of what was then a, a sort of a powerful Egyptian empire. Uh, and interestingly enough, it appears that it was called either Rusalimam or perhaps Yerusalimam, which some scientists, archaeologists, believe actually means the dwelling place of Shalim, unlike what we currently say it, it means, who was a Canaanite god of dawn. And that because we had lots of gods running around in that period of time up until monotheism really took hold, uh, in the, about 3,500 years ago, the famous sea peoples that we call Philistines, uh, as the, they're called in the Bible, uh, invaded and destabilized the whole region and Egypt, causing it to lose its grip over over Canaan, um, which is why David was fighting Philistines and other people were fighting Philistines. Some 3,000 years ago, to skip a little bit ahead, David, King David, founded the kingdom called Judea. And Jerusalem was its capital. That's only about 3,000 years ago. So clearly we've been connected for at least those 3,000 years. Uh, the first temple was erected and the peoples of the kingdom's outlying areas were gradually made to abandon their old rituals and, and practice religion, among other things, to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem, which is what we had in the festivals that you read in the Torah, Sukkot and, uh, and Pesach and Shavuot were the three pilgrimage festivals of the year when everybody was supposed to come to Jerusalem and, and offer sacrifices and because Jerusalem was the, the central shrine. Um, during the rest of the city's history, there was influx of religious pilgrims and uh, administrative matters that would really was maintain its economic backbone. Then the Assyrians came along, 
1733, just to get a sense, BCE. 1733 BCE, uh, the Judean king at the time, Ahaz of Jerusalem, appealed to the Assyrian king, who had one of my favorite names, Tiglath Pelizer III. I always liked the way that sounded. Tiglath Pelizer III he appealed to him because they was having fights with Israel, which was the northern kingdom. Judea was the southern kingdom, asking him to uh, intercede on his behalf with the conflict of the kingdom of Israel, which was the northern kingdom. And he was more than happy to oblige, ended up uh, destroying Israel and turning Judea into a vassal state, so he was happy to do that because he was a much more powerful. But empires don't last forever, as you'll see, and the Assyrians were conquered then by the Babylonians, so in about 605 BCE, um, uh, and then eight years later, King Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem, took its aristocracy, including its king, uh, into captivity in Babylonia. Zedekiah was made vassal king at the time, rebelled in 587, 586 BCE, which prompted Nebuchadnezzar to descend on Jerusalem with great vengeance. He destroyed the city and the first temple, captured local leaders, brought them to Babylonia. After its Babylonian appointed governor, a man named Gedaliah, there's actually in Jewish tradition a fast for Gedaliah, Tzom Gedaliah, before Rosh Hashanah, he was assassinated, Jerusalem was abandoned, and remained desolate for a number of decades. But Babylonia's turn to fall then came soon after, and in 538 BCE, King Cyrus II of Persia invaded Babylonia, assumed control of its vast empire, including Jerusalem, seeking to make the exiled Judeans his allies. Cyrus became our friend, and um, the king decreed that same year that they could return to Jerusalem. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah and probably the editing of the Bible itself. To that end, Cyrus even contributed funds and restored the pillaged treasures of the first temple, and as a result, the second temple was completed in about 516 BCE, and Jerusalem became once again the center of the Judean people, as well as the administrative center of that uh, Persian province of Judea, because it was Persian then. It had been Babylonian, it had been Assyrian. That's the way it works in Jerusalem. But once again, events far beyond Jerusalem would alter its fate, And in about 334 BCE, someone known as Alexander the Great of Macedonia invaded the Persian Empire and brought it under his power. After Alexander's death, nine years later, many of you know, his kingdom was divided up into big sections. And now we're coming up to uh, about to experience the Hanukkah story. And um, all of his generals fought for control, and it was divided up into a number of smaller kingdoms, Hellenistic kingdoms, Judea and its capital Jerusalem fell into the control of Ptolemy which had never been spelled with a P but Ptolemy, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y Ptolemy the first, who ruled the region from Alexandria which was the center of Egyptian power this was a great period of growth in Jerusalem it was the precursor to the Hanukkah story, increasingly took the form of Hellenistic polis, the city-state process that continued through the Seleucid Empire. Um, I'm sorry, after the Seleucid Empire, whose capital was in Antioch, which is now a modern city in Turkey, seized control of Judea from the Ptolemaic Empire in about 198 BCE. Gradually, the upper strata of Jerusalem's inhabitants adopted more and more elements of Greek life, because that was sort of the sexy life of the time. And... um, This angered more and more traditional Jews 
in their midst, prompting the Maccabean revolt that allowed us to end up with all these dreidels here that we're going to start celebrating tomorrow night. Um, the revolt against the Seleucids, establishment of an independent Hasmonean kingdom with its capital in Jerusalem. Amazing. Then Herod comes along. Good old Herod. Subsequently, the Hasmonean monarchs themselves became more and more Hellenized. Then after some internal fighting, which was constantly going on within the dynasty, and an attempted rebellion against the Romans, never a good idea, the Romans deposed the Hasmoneans and installed King Herod in about 37 BCE as their vassal ruler over the kingdom of Judea. On the one hand, Herod was known as a kind of very cruel, despotic guy. And on the other hand, he was a big builder. That was the good news. And he undertook unprecedented large-scale building projects in his kingdom, including, and most importantly, the spectacular rebuilding and remodeling of the Second Temple in Jerusalem and the walls and all the walls that we now cherish. After Herod's death in 4 BCE, Jerusalem and Judea were placed under the control of Roman-appointed governors who ruled from Caesarea, which was the new capital that they had established, which had been established by Herod. And though uh, Jerusalem lost its status as administrative center, it remained a major hub for the Jews and for Jewish pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire. Then it was, by the way, for the Christians in our group, it was about during this time that a charismatic Galilean named Jesus began preaching to his fellow Jews. It's believed that he was perhaps crucified after Passover, possibly around the year 33 of the Common Era, and, of course, his followers were spread his message after his death, forming small Jewish sects originally, of which Christianity was to arise several decades later. Meanwhile, in about 66 of the Common Era, we've now moved from B.C. to C.E., the Jews of Judea rebelled against their Roman overlords. Nero, remember Nero? Fabulous emperor was informed of the revolt while attending the Olympic Games and dispatched his experienced general Vespasian, not a friendly guy, to quash the uprising while Vespasian was fighting the rebels. Nero went crazy, descended into madness, and uh, was ultimately pronounced the enemy of the people of Rome by the Roman Senate. Uh, He escaped the city, committed suicide, for those who are interested, in about 68 of the Common Era. The Senate ultimately then called Vespasian to come back and become the ruler, the emperor of Rome. So he left his son Titus, to clean up the mess in Judea. This occurred around 70. We all remember 70. Um, when all the territory ended up in Roman hands and they quashed the rebellion and um, the re- ending with the famous uh, enclave in Masada. So, and the Romans, of course, like every conqueror, slaughtered thousands of men, women, and children. Second Temple was pillaged, destroyed, and for decades it lay in waste, and often Jews were forbidden even to visit. Then it was Emperor Hadrian who rescued Jerusalem from its lowly situation in the year 135. Aren't you fascinated by all this? He visited it and ordered it to be rebuilt as a pagan city. It was renamed Elio Capitolina, and thus it remained for about 150 years, a small, sort of unimportant pagan backwater in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, even though Jews were still praying for it. But after Emperor Constantine I determined that Christianity would be the official religion of the Roman Empire, 
he ordered Jerusalem to be reinstated as a Christian holy city in the early part of the 4th century and erected the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which many of you have visited on the site where tradition says Jesus was crucified and buried. Then Jerusalem remained Christian for centuries. With pilgrims pouring in from around the Christian world, Jews were still usually banned from visiting the city, although the anniversary of the Second Temple's destruction evidently was a, a, a particularly powerful day, and Jews were always allowed to the former site of the Temple Mount, where Christians were using it at the time as a garbage dump. Seems to be a commonality with the Muslims who did the same thing later on. Meanwhile, in the deserts of Arabia, meanwhile, back in Arabia, a shepherd and merchant named Muhammad was preaching a new religion based on Christian and Jewish traditions, and all the Koran doesn't specifically mention Jerusalem, which Jews are often quick to point out, we have our 660 mentions and they don't have it. The, the Islamic tradition clearly also was that allegedly Muhammad flew on the back of a, his mythical creature horse named Al-Baruk, Barak, uh, a winged horse with the head of a man, from Mecca to the Temple Mount and from there ascended up to heaven, uh, hung out with God and came back, which is allegedly the site where the Dome of the Rock is built. Uh, which Jews also traditionally said is the site where Abraham didn't sacrifice Isaac, kind of the center of the world, that one. Um, After the prophet Muhammad died in the year 632, his followers uh, carried out a series of conquests, as you know, incredible conquests, eventually spanning an area including India in the east and Spain in the west. I mean, that's a lot of territory. And Jerusalem would be one of the first cities that they captured. Within six years of the Prophet's death, the people of Jerusalem capitulated to the Muslim Caliph Umar ibn al-Khattab in return for a promise that they would be allowed to continue worshipping in the city, and one of Umar's successors erected the Dome of the Rock, and uh, he and his son also erected the Al-Aqsa Mosque, right on the same Temple Mount, uh, in 691. Uh, Their dynasty, which is the Umayyads, remained in control of Jerusalem and the vast Arab Empire until about the 11th century, when it was conquered by a new dynasty, the Fatimids. And one of the latter's rulers, Caliph al-Hakim bi Amar Allah, ordered that all of Jerusalem's churches be destroyed in 1009. That date should start to ring a bell. And persecuted Christian and Jewish worshippers at the time. Thus, after 1009, this prompted Christian Europe to mobilize and dispatch its warriors known as the Crusaders, to wrest control of the holy city once again. The great irony of the world is that Yerushalayim is the city of peace. In, 19, in 1099, they captured Jerusalem and killed nearly all of its Jewish and Muslim inhabitants, those friendly Crusaders. The Crusaders then established, and they killed, of course, Jews all the way on, too, from Europe too, in Jerusalem as well, They then established the city as the capital of the Christian kingdom, the kingdom of Jerusalem. Muslim holy sites were adapted to serve Christian purposes, and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was rebuilt, which is why you can still see it. Then, once again, the kingdom of Jerusalem didn't last long. In 1187, Saladin, whom you may have heard of, founder of the Muslim Ayyubid dynasty, reconquered Jerusalem, and... uh, Although Islamic control of the city would once again be relatively short-lived, because in 1229, a uh, treaty between uh, 
the uh, Sultan and the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II brought back Nazareth, Bethlehem, a coastal strip of the Holy Land, and most of Jerusalem into Christian hands. The Temple Mount, however, remained in Muslim control. This arrangement didn't last long either. In 1244, Sunni Muslim Turks conquered Jerusalem and almost completely destroyed it. Their control of the city was short-lived as well, because in 1250, that was only six years later, Egypt, and with it Jerusalem, was captured by the Mamluks. Under the Mamluk rule, Jerusalem underwent a slight renaissance. Some major construction took place. Pilgrimages by Muslims, Christians, and Jewish believers were revived. And this was the state of affairs from 1250 to 1516, when the Ottoman Empire came along and conquered the entire region, ending the Mamluk rule and gained control of the city of Jerusalem. Under Turkish rule, that was the Ottomans, Jerusalem regressed, became a little more of a backwater again, losing its status as a provincial capital and its massive influx of pilgrims. However, thanks to Suleiman the Magnificent, the city's walls torn down during the tumultuous 13th century were rebuilt. Moreover, the Ottomans were tolerant rulers, allowing the three religions to coexist side by side within the city. And toward the end of the Ottoman Empire, a number of settlements began to sprout up around the tiny and expanding walled old city of Jerusalem. Then the Ottomans ruled Jerusalem nearly uninterrupted for 400 years. They were around for a long time until World War I. World War I, when British General Edmund Allenby conquered Palestine on behalf of the mandatory British government, entering Jerusalem as a victor in 1917. And we all know that the modern, quote, states of the Middle East were the result of the British and the French carving up the Middle East after World War I and saying, you get this, we get that, and here's this, and here's the borders, and it was kind of an arbitrary carving up of the Middle East in the first place. Uh, The British reestablished the city as a major administrative capital in the region. However, the fact that the British, being who they were, promised Jerusalem and Palestine in their own way, both to Jews and Arabs, continued to sort of fan hostility all the time. Uh, continued to mount, obviously, through World War II. In the Holocaust, large numbers of Jewish refugees began pouring in when they could uh, and be the blockade into Palestine. Uh, short version is when British rule ended in Palestine, that became Israel in 1948, war ensued, Jerusalem was split in two. This is the short version. The eastern half became part of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, and the western half was capital of the Jewish state of Israel, which is how it remained until 1967 when Israel launched its preemptive six-day war against Egypt, Syria, and although they begged Jordan to stay out of it, Jordan thought they would probably be able to be conquerors and be able to reunite the whole city under Jordanian rule. They joined in, which was a big mistake on their part, and Jerusalem was united once again. Um, And there's still the prayer that Jerusalem someday will, in fact, live up to its name of the city of peace. So, that's history lesson number one. Stay tuned. Here's shorter history lesson number two. That was the long version. This is a quick, brief history of the politics of Jerusalem since the 1947 partition plan and why this became what it is and why all the hoopla last week. 
which many people don't quite understand. What's the big deal? When the United Nations, November 29, 1947, gave its imprimatur to a plan to divide mandatory Palestine into two states, one Arab and one Jewish, it famously left Jerusalem out of the equation. That is, it didn't say Jerusalem belonged to the Jewish part or Jerusalem belonged to the Arab part. Instead, it specifically declared Jerusalem to be a um, international city. That was their expectation, that Jerusalem would be an international city actually run by the United Nations, administered by the United Nations. That was in their original plan. Even though Jerusalem had a large Jewish majority, um, it was called a corpus separatum, a separate entity from either of the Arab or the Jewish alleged states that would potentially come into being. The Jews accepted the plan, as we know, uh, and Ben-Gurion noted that the loss of Jerusalem as part of sovereign Israel was just, quote, the price we have to pay for a state and the rest of the land, because he was certainly practical, if he was anything. And when the Arabs rejected the partition plan and launched war on Israel, uh, the latter... Israel no longer considered itself bound by the boundaries set up by the United Nations plan because that was thrown out the window as soon as the Arabs rejected it and attacked Israel and tried to destroy what was left of the, the Jewish settlement before it actually declared itself, as it declared itself. During its war of independence, Israel improved its strategic position in most parts of the country and in Jerusalem when the ceasefire, ceasefire lines were drawn. There's never been a peace ceasefire lines were drawn. Israel, as you know, occupied the western part, and Jordan, Jordanians, the cities east, including the old city and the western wall and the Temple Mount. Israel had fought for Jerusalem, and uh, now it was not about to give any of it up. Officially, the United Nations stuck with its internationalization plan after the war, but both Israel and Jordan preferred to leave the city divided at the time, a no-man's land, if you were there, uh, if you've ever seen pictures before the 67, saw the, the wall that separated, and the no-man's land that separated the Jordanian half of the city from the Israeli half of the city. Um, it ran through the center of the city, a barrier, a passage from one side to the other was severely limited and scary, and if the city had been under international control, everyone would have had access to all of its parts, theoretically, including the holy sites. And although attempts were made by Jordan and Israel to come to an agreement, more or less, on Jerusalem, both sides also took their own unilateral steps, making it unlikely that agreement would be reached. Uh, Israel, of course, uh, annexed formally the West Jerusalem to its territory that wasn't originally part of the partition plan on December 5th of 1948, and declared its capital a week, the city its capital a week later. Uh, Jordan following by annexing, followed by annexing East Jerusalem to Jordan on December 13, and also named Jerusalem as allegedly a second capital, although it never actually used it in that way. Can we have one quick note there? Yeah, sure. So... Right. The entire old city, yep. the western wall, um, the Arab Jewish Christian quarter, 
whereas the old city was all you know, under control of the Georgia at that point in time. Yes, and, so and Jews weren't allowed to be there. It's capital, <clears throat> it was in front of Western Jerusalem. Yes. You, as a Jew, um, or frankly a Christian at that point in time, essentially it's not safe, not allowed to not only go to pray or the Western Wall. Right. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're sure of being killed. So that situation prevailed uh, <clears throat> under the situation prevailing during the 19 years between statehood and the 67 war uh, was a sort of an, an ongoing, <clears throat> hostile, uncomfortable status quo. I sort of think of North and South Korea in many ways, you know, with a no man's land and um, and a divided city, a divided like a divided country. Uh, so long as that situation persisted, uh, Israel may, and Israel officially remained in a state of war with the Arab world, no agreement was going to be reached about Jerusalem. And uh, so long as the two sides to the conflict could not formally agree on the city, the whole city's future, which certainly they couldn't, the United Nations was neither going to take sides, allegedly, nor attempt to impose a solution on them. Hence, the question of Jerusalem officially, technically, United Nations legally, remained open, and officially the city was not recognized as part of either Israeli or Jordanian territory by the United Nations, in theory. Um, This was not to say that foreign diplomats wouldn't come to Jerusalem, obviously, because that's where Israel set up its its, its, uh, administrative center, and uh, from the very beginning. So ultimately what happened is to today and continues to happen is any country that had an, uh, a consul or an embassy or whatever in Israel would set it up in Tel Aviv, but they all had to come to Jerusalem to do any work because that's where everybody was. Because as far as Israel is concerned, this is our capital. Um, but recognizing it as Israel's capital or setting up an embassy there was in the official uh, United Nations perspective and then therefore adopted by, officially really by every other nation, would be tantamount to, quote, prejudicing any future political settlement. That was the perception. That was what they were alleging, that it would prejudice the future, any future settlement because officially Jerusalem's still no man, no person's land. That is to be an international city unless there's some agreement made by the parties involved. UN resolution 2.4.2. Yes. That they would have to really, the parties themselves have to. Yeah, and a number of resolutions ever since that kept reinforcing the United Nations resolution that said the parties have to agree on something, otherwise we're, we wait for them. Then came the Six-Day War, when Israel took possession of Jordanian Jerusalem and expanded the city's boundaries to the north and the east and the south, which took in a number of Arab neighborhoods that had not historically been part of metropolitan Jerusalem, but because, you know, it's been growing, obviously, uh, all this time. Over the years, Israel has moved all of its government offices to the city. Some of them are actually in the eastern section. Um, and there's been all kinds of construction, all kinds of other things going on. Um, in recent decades, everyone's position got harder and harder, hardened and hardened, it seems to me, in many ways. Um, and the world community wouldn't give a uh, acknowledgement to Israel's unilateral uh, 
adoption of all of Jerusalem, Israel in 1980, uh, the Knesset passed a resolution publicly declaring Israel one, Jerusalem a divi- an undivided, Israel's undivided capital f- for all time. Um, but the United Nations, because of its resolutions, and, and therefore, I suppose, all the other countries around the world continue to, um, to act as if and to claim that declaring Israel, Jerusalem, Israel's capital would prejudice future, future negotiations and be perceived as taking sides in an ongoing dispute that the United Nations declared needed to be resolved by the parties involved, namely the Palestinians, uh, Jordanians, uh, who continue to this day, theoretically, to retain control of the Temple Mount. Um, so, uh, and although obviously Israelis and Palestinians have been negotiating on and off, as I said, over during various presidents' attempts, more or less seriously, for more than 25 years, talks on Jerusalem have never gotten very far. It's always been left as sort of the last thing, because we could agree on other things, but it's the hardest nut to crack, because we have this group and this group, the Jews and the Palestinians, at least, all both... Uh, passionately claiming Jerusalem, regardless of what the ultimate boundaries may be, as their state capital. Um, So, and as long as the sides cannot agree on a mutually agreeable plan for sharing sovereignty in Jerusalem or any other arrangement there, the world community concluded that it must impose a solution on the sides it would be highly improbable for any individual state to unilaterally give official recognition to Jerusalem as its capital, at least until now, which happened last week. So, I don't know if that helps at all, but let me say something about evangelicals and then I'll throw it open to what anybody wants to talk about. Um, I don't know if you know anything about the theology of evangelical Christianity. Um, I won't go into detail uh, except as to say that there is a reason that evangelical, uh, well-known, powerful, influential evangelical preachers are so pro-Israel um, and uh, get invited to speak at uh, national conferences and things like that uh, on behalf of Israel because of their theology. Um, to evangelicals um, Armageddon the end of the world end times um, is a good thing it's the time when uh, the rapture will take place a whole bunch of best selling novels about that a movie out one of them right came out a couple years ago and, of course, in the rapture, um, uh, those who are worthy uh, immediately get uh, snatched up to heaven, disappear from, uh, go to heaven, and, uh, and those who are um, left behind, who are not the, the worthy, end up in, uh, in the devil's playground. Uh, Israel and Jerusalem plays a key role in the coming of the end times. Uh, 
because when the ultimate war of uh, Armageddon takes place, according to uh, classic evangelical theology, Jesus returns to vanquish all of God's enemies, uh, it will only happen after their Jews have reclaimed Israel and Jerusalem uh, and rebuilt the temple. They are among those who really want to see a third temple being built in Jerusalem because that will be a fore, uh, forebear of the, of the end of times as laid out in the book of Revelations. So to evangelicals, Trump's announcement is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. I mean, it is moving us toward the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, and they uh, see him as an instrument of God in that sense, moving us closer to that time, to the judgment, the rapture, and the end, and the end of times. Um, and there are millions of American evangelicals, um, millions, who uh, who believe this, it's their faith and their identity, and um, and that's the uh, another part of the answer to the question that I also responded to last time. People ask uh, people who are confused about why evangelicals would support um, Trump uh, when he doesn't. Have necessarily appear to be the, the most uh, upstanding uh, Christian um, and um, you know the tape that was released and the things that he said and what have you and had had affairs when he was married or what have you um, and uh, and I, last time I just mentioned that <clears throat> there are, uh, that the fundamental reason <clears throat> that uh, evangelical Christians uh, supported Trump and support, uh, throwing support in Alabama, as a matter of fact, as well, um, is the issue of abortion. That that is an overriding issue for them, and that we all have multiple values, and, and our values are often in conflict with each other, and we all, all of us, have uh, our own hierarchy of values, where we may have five things that are really important to us, but there's a hierarchy of them. One trumps the other, trumps the other, Trumps the other, um, and uh, and certainly for much of the Christian world, and certainly the evangelical Christians, the issue of abortion is at the very top of the list. And so, almost everything else is less important than that, and, and uh, willing to put up with what that uh, in order to elect someone who will will stand up for uh, for fighting against uh, abortion rights. Uh, and clearly, between Trump and Hillary Clinton, that was that was a no-brainer of who they're going to support. And so too with the Republican agenda versus the Democratic agenda, where the Republicans have consistently held their position to be, uh, you know, against uh, Roe versus Wade and those kind of things. So therefore, they show up and they vote for people that that reflect their values in that sense, because that's a more important value than some of the other values, which are also important, but. But if there's a choice, that's going to that's going to uh, to trump it. And this issue of Israel and Jerusalem and his constant pledge during his campaign to move the embassy to Israel was a, a flag waving in, to evangelicals of exactly signaling that he's our guy. 
when it comes to this issue. And this is a, another really powerful, important, you know, soul important, eternal life important value. It's not a little thing. This is uh, this is a, a huge thing. And so, um, a- apart from sort of the obvious, it seems to me, in this case, of having another being able to have another check on his own personal list of campaign promises that he can point to and say, I've fulfilled, which is always an issue for every politician, uh, you know, particularly big campaign promises, uh, and and having experienced some of the trouble that he's been experiencing in in getting his agenda uh, passed by Congress. um, This was also another big notch that he could say, and he didn't need anybody's permission. You know, this was something he could do without... Congress. Nobody needed to vote on it. Nobody needed to do anything. He had the power personally to fulfill this promise, which he doesn't in most of his legislative agendas. He doesn't have the power to do them. He has to get Congress to vote to do whatever it happens to be. This, he didn't need anybody. He could stand up and say what he said and make the declaration, fulfill his promises, you know, not just to Sheldon Adelson, but, but probably more importantly to the evangelicals. Okay. Yes. So why didn't he do it January? Why didn't he do it January 21st? Roy Moore was, Roy, Roy Moore was, was a shooter. But he wasn't on television. No, no, why didn't Trump... So why didn't Trump say, declare Jerusalem as it's... Well, that was part because evangelicals are all showing up to, to vote for, for paying off this as well. It does... It, it's not unrelated. It seems unrelated. It's not unrelated. It's not unrelated. There's a reason that Trump is there campaigning for Roy Moore. Uh, and sending messages to the uh, to those who might otherwise not show up. This is a way of also of galvanizing the evangelicals to show up and and vote. Um, but why didn't he in the past? Why didn't he in the past? Anybody? You know, um, and he was. I suspect. I don't know. What do I know? I'm not there. I don't know. But um, it's one thing to make a promise. He's not the first president who's promised to move the embassy. You know, the, the embassy's been promised to be moved in the past. And when people get in the, into office, everybody counsels them not to do it. Um, because of, A, the whole, you know, we stand alone against the whole world, almost, almost, not all the whole world, Czechoslovakia said it as well, I think, and a couple of couple of in Hungary actually applauded him in Czechoslovakia. But uh, you could see from the reaction of the world, because the world governments, along with the UN, believe that making such a statement prejudices the ultimate outcome. The world believed, and United States diplomats believed up to this may or may not be true, but they will see, but they certainly have believed and taught that making such a statement would result in the Palestinians seeing us uh, in no way as uh, as a an honest broker of peace. We keep trying to show up as as brokering peace in the Middle East. Every president keeps sending somebody in there to bro- and sometimes themselves to try to broker peace and that the the perception of career diplomats certainly has always been that if we were to make this declaration, we would be signaling to the Palestinians we're really on Israel's side. You know, as if as if our, the things we've done haven't shown that anyway. But th- that it would signal that, and it would 
kill any possibility of us playing the role that we want to play in the Middle East and not have them turn to, I don't know, Russia or who was the other, I mean, there's bigger global politics involved. But it seems to me that every president has been urged not to do it, to uh, not, not to make the declaration because of the potential political implications and fear of it creating riots and people dying and because you say that. Yeah. So um, just a couple pieces of the American history Please. Recent history. Um, one, the president um, didn't need anybody's approval because approval was already given. If I'm not mistaken, in the early 1990s. Yeah, Congress Congress passed a, 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 a basis. in 1990, 1995 or yeah, 1995. Co-sponsored and led by Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein. Well, that um, supported. Um, Declared Jerusalem as the as the capital of Israel. Yeah. 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 Um, right. The the United States government had already made that declaration essentially through right. through Congress. So just a, a, a couple other things. Um, so you know, one of the arguments has been made: every single country in the world that is a sovereign state recognized by the United Nations and otherwise has the ability to declare where the capital should be. So you know, Israel in nineteen. Um, sanctioned by the um, United Nations right. um, and supported by Democratic you know, President Harry Truman after 11 minutes with the first one to vote in favor. Yeah. Um, they declared Jerusalem as its capital, even though that didn't include the old city of the war wall or anyplace else. Um, so just one point on the evangelicals that I want to sure. make is, um, uh, and with all due um, respect and my learning from Please. a great rabbi once taught me and others what you say matters and what you do matters. And um, I'm more impressed with what the um, Christian community in the United States of America says with respect to Israel and to what they're actually doing with respect to Israel, going there, financially supporting, politically supporting. And also it's been said in these halls that um, at least with respect to Judaism, you know, more about belonging than belief. Yep. So I'm a little less concerned about the theology and belief of why they're doing it. Um, and I think you can't lump all of Christian support and, and no, I don't support, you know, in the evangelical rapture, um, you know, point of view. Um, and then just the, the, the last couple comments I had was um, no, but it is those millions that pushed him over the edge. That is, had those millions not sh- those people not shown up and voted, I, I, so so that's certainly powerful. Yeah, it's important. I read something recently where there was a whole piece written that looked Jerry Kushner and, you know, David... Friedman, Friedman, yes. Israel, right. Jews, yeah, they're pushing for it, too. It's, it's the, uh, the, 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 that group and this group. That it's, you know, the religious right of Jews. Yes. It's the Zionists or, and other people will make the case. Actually, I would say it's probably the religious right of both Christian, Christians and Jews that together are an important constituency for him. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also people who just believe that it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And they involve themselves. And Israel is one of our greatest allies in the world. And that the peace process, you know, has gone nowhere. You know, Prime Minister Abu Omar, you know, in one of his peace offers had actually said, Palestinians, you get a state and your capital is Jerusalem. 
Right. Right? You want it 97% of the land. So, um, so it's, there's a lot of you know, issues there. Yeah, yeah, and and there's no question, but but the question was, why haven't why did you do it now, and why hasn't it been done in the past? Well, so it, because the waiver was came up, he had to make every yeah. See the way the way it literally works is every six months, the president because of Congress's act in 1995 that said we are recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and. Uh, and the, and the, our embassy should be moved there unless the president, every six months, says no, essentially. I mean, that's the short version of it. Has to sign a, a waiver say, saying we're not yet instituting that, that uh, congressional decision. We're not yet instituting that. We're not yet. And every six months, he has to sign that. So since he's been in office, Trump, every six months, it's been a year now, has had to sign something himself going against his campaign promise, which is, I'm going to, day one, I'm going to declare it, Jerusalem, it's, uh, it's Israel's capital, and move the embassy. So he's been forced to literally sign his name and go against his own campaign promises, so, which he's clearly loath to do. Um, and so this came up, this was one of those times when it came up, and was an opportunity for him to say yes or no, do it or don't, which is why he was signaling when it comes up this time, I, I don't think I'm, I'm not going to do it. And gave sort of fair warning to people. I mean, they weren't surprised when he said it. He'd already he'd sent out signals essentially telling people that he was going to do that. Um, you know, And it's interesting. I haven't, didn't notice anything today. Are there people dying today as a result anywhere? Did anybody see that? I didn't see it anywhere. Um, Probably there were, yeah. there were a couple of people died yeah. demonstrating. Yeah, but and, and two people were seriously injured in Manhattan. Oh yeah, for that. Yeah, I, I, right. Well, that was and allegedly that was about I'm upset about Gaza or something. I heard the guy. Anyway, but <clears throat> I don't think that was about this. I mean, yes, there was there was somebody let off a bomb. Uh, uh, in in Manhattan, 42nd Street, <clears throat> Times Square, I guess today. Yes. But it's difficult to run foreign policy based upon threat of bad action. Yeah, no, right. What 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 is actually surprising to me, personally, is um, the lack of um, of extreme reaction in Israel. Uh, Hamas called for three days of rage, uh, and it seemed relatively... There's been a lot of times in Israel when the rage was a lot worse. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. (laughs) The Palestinian rage was a lot worse. There were a lot larger demonstrations. There was a lot... Then the reaction to this, which is fascinating, which is interesting. Maybe it's, you know, weariness about the ongoing nature of this of this also, uh, I think the is like the third three day of rage that they called for in the last year yeah but but you know even so it's uh, it's interesting that it, it it didn't spark did in other parts of the, I mean there were thousands of people in Indonesia I thought that was amazing but uh, we're, we're marching and, and protesting but um, it could have been a lot worse that's all I'm saying I wonder if some of that relates uh, go ahead no go ahead and then I'll. some of that relates 
to a lack of respect for Trump across the world in terms of I mean the lack of respect oh and you have to dismiss a lot of it because who knows what it's um, maybe, but uh, it doesn't seem to me that that would be a. I mean, maybe the the lack of a greater Palestinian angry res- demonstration. I mean, they demonstrated different places. The one, uh, the couple of people that died. I saw that. There was the stabbing of the man in the uh, in uh, the central bus station in Jerusalem um, from Palestinian. Um, but uh, maybe the lack of it is the lack of expectation, the low level, not about Trump, but in general, America, the low level of expectation of things moving forward that America, from um, part of Palestinians anyway, before this, that America is really an honest broker or going to be on their side or because their perception appears to be that, um, and certainly uh, Trump's positive relationship with Netanyahu is who's sort of the um, the bad guy uh, certainly to the Palestinians and their majority of them in their view and maybe that's just an overall lack of expectation that anything's going to move forward I don't know, yeah You know, Palestine, quote, and the oppression of Israel, of the Palestinians by Israel, and quote, and the occupation of Israel, of Palestinian land, um, has been a tool of Muslim governments uh, ever since the War of Independence, um, in many ways to divert attention in their own countries away from their own issues. Um, we can always rally. It's like why people go to war. You know, people leaders run the country. Let's go to war, and then everyone will be on the same team uh, to divert from ho- problems at home or whatever. You know, which is a sort of classic political ploy of governments and uh, and leaders of countries. And in many ways, that's been um, uh, part and parcel of of Muslim country, Arab country politics ever since. Um, the lack of uh, integrating refugees into their country, creating refugee camps, keeping that alive, um, you know, uh, has been all a part of this um, politicalization of, of, the, of the tragedy of refugeeism, period, you know, of the upheaval that took place. Uh, and, um, you know, the irony is, I don't know if you saw the, the, uh, the clip or the the uh, press conference with the State Department after this, that was like the great another little ironic thing. There was a State Department uh, uh, directors were were asked how is how is this new arrangement, this new commitment from the president to de- declaring, I'm getting this out of my way, declaring Israel as its capital, 
um, uh, changing status on the ground. I mean, obviously, the embassy is not going to move tomorrow. It takes, if we're going to literally move the embassy, it takes, it's going to take years one way or another. However, um, is this going to change our maps? To say that Jerusalem is in Israel, because our maps don't say Jerusalem is necessarily part of Israel. And if you're born in Israel, if you're born in Jerusalem, and you're an American citizen, and you get a passport that says birth, it doesn't say Israel. It says Jerusalem, as if it's a separate country, Jerusalem, because we are continuing to keep with the, the kind of myth that Jerusalem is an international city, an international entity of its own to be administered by the United Nations, which, of course, it never has been since 1948, and its status to be resolved in an ultimate peace agreement between the parties, whoever that might be. Supposed to be actually Jordan and the Palestinians, I suppose. Actually, supposed to be Jordan and Israel, but and Arab, and now the Palestinians. So we, and the answer was no. That's not changing. So they said no. That's not changing. None, none of that's changing. They said, whether that's going to ultimately take place or not. But that was the immediate response of the State Department to the reporters who said, okay, now what? Now you know, is everything going to reflect Jerusalem as a part of Israel? Is the capital of Israel? No. It's like you know, it's crazy. I was about to say, all, they may be changing. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> their jobs may change. But, but that's, you know, because that's, that's been the craziness, part of the craziness of this whole situation. But, but you see the, the, the sort of, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's yes and there's yes. There's yes that uh, what Trump said uh, is, yeah, and what his administration said, which is, all we're doing is stating facts. All we're doing is saying what's so. You know, what's so is Israel, the country, has chosen Jerusalem, the city, as its capital and treats it that way, and it's been that way for 60-plus years. And all we are doing is acknowledging what's so about Israel as every other as you just as every other country in the world gets to do, which is to say, this city's our capital, not that city. Right, but I think and he also said that we're not discussing land or border Yes. Decisions. And he and right. parties wish to negotiate a two state solution. You know, I think the president said that he was in support of that too. Yes, he did. And and he further said this doesn't change what he said was this doesn't change anything in the sense that it doesn't change our position about ultimate status at all or boundaries because clearly the expectation still is if there ever is a two-state solution and the Palestinians ever get an officially recognized state with officially recognized boundaries, that they're going to declare Jerusalem as their capital wherever that boundary may be in the, in the environs of Jerusalem, whoever's going to draw that boundary. I mean, there may be some other, you know, they could, it's creative, you know, both Israel and Palestine can have Jerusalem as its capital, and how one service or another is, what does that mean that something's your capital? What does it mean that this is your city? It means you have certain 
responsibilities, civic responsibilities as a government to the people in that city. You know, the buses running, the sewers, the infrastructure. What does that mean? How that gets played out is something that would be worked out. Theoretically, if there were peace going on, who's responsible for what area of the city? And clearly, that's still the expectation. And, and uh, President, the president didn't say that's changed in any way. He specifically said it's not. That wasn't the issue with people. That's not why people got upset. Because he could have said, he could have done one better for the peace process and, and also said, and I expect this to be the capital of Palestine and God willing it should happen soon, you know, in our day. Could have said that also. Um, but it wasn't particularly his issue. So th- that's the yes, that is, yes, what he said is exactly true. And on the other hand, Yes, it's also true that most of the world, almost the entire, all the other governments of the world, because of the United Nations resolutions and our agreement with that, working in that context, thought it was a mistake and thought it went against the United Nations, the agreement that the status of Jerusalem is going to, is supposed to be left into the hands of ultimate negotiation. And... And the, that statement had the appearance of undermining that, of contradicting that, you know. So, um, anyway, it's it, you know it remains to be seen. Evidently, there was a, there's a peace proposal, a Jared Kushner peace proposal in the making. I keep hearing that there's something coming up. I don't know what it is. Maybe you know what it is, but uh, maybe you've heard with your inside. Connections, but everybody knows the answer. I mean, it's not, it's not really, I mean, the answer's been out there for a very long time. Yeah. Right? And, it's, and, and I think that you know, people are saying that part of the process of just this quote unquote, you know, being an honest broker, like, you know, the honest situation is that people know there's a certain solution out there. Yeah. And, Right. And East Jerusalem would be the capital of the Palestinian state. Yeah. And there would be agreed upon land swaps so that the major settlement blocks, you know, would become part of Israel and other lands go to the Palestinians. And, you know, those Jews who are in the illegal or the more outlying territories in the West Bank are going to, you know, they're going to be out of luck. They're going to move back. They're going to be in a, or in a Palestinian state. Right. It's, you know, Palestine is going to have to be a demilitarized state because Israel doesn't have defensible borders. And, Right. The region has shown um, the ability. I mean, they're ready. They're defending 11. Israel defends 11 borders. Yeah. So, you know, so I think everyone knows. And it's, and it's, the, same, it's the same proposal over and over again ever since. You and I, I think. Ever since there was one. I think most, most people yeah. left and right. Yeah, it's that, agree. that's it. That is it. You know, it was like Taba. It's like every other place they showed up. They said, here it is. Yeah. It's peace from the top down, not from the bottom up. Like when the leaders are really ready to make peace. Yes. They're ready to make peace, the people. Yes, and they do every day. After all, that's, you know, when we have... Not all the people. 
Well, no, but 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 you know, that's like I mean, I remember giving a holiday sermon called "Peace, Peace on the Ground," and just articulating one thing after another all over Israel, where uh, Israelis and Palestinians are working together, doing joint projects, economic projects, social projects, issues, all over the place. It's sort of like when you stand in in the old city and you go, oh. Jewish quarter, Muslim quarter, Christian quarter, you're standing in one place. Oh, you know, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is here, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque is there, and the wall is right there, and you can throw a rock and hit all of them. People have. But, but you know, and, why don't, and you keep going, why doesn't everybody just open your eyes and go, oh, look, people are living together. <laughs> they're, they're all living together, and they're all worshiping their own, their own way. It's actually happening. Why don't they just call it that? And, you know, it's like, let's call it what it is, which is people are actually living together. Muslims, Jews, Christians are living together mostly. And then there are those who aren't. In Israel. In Israel. In Israel. Yeah. You know. I mean, the only place to be a Christian in the Middle East is Israel. Safe. Yeah. Or gay. The only place to be gay in Israel, in the Middle East to be safe is in Israel. You know. No matter who you are, of course, it's like it's a big deal, and and just like, you know, when I said eventually in the when uh, when the Christian Empire used the the uh, the Temple Mount for a garbage heap, that was of course when when uh, Jordan took over and had the Armistice Agreement and controlled the 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 old city and the Jewish quarter, and they desecrated the Jewish quarter, and they prevented Jews from being able to visit and worship uh, our Jewish holy sites and they used you know the Jewish uh, gravestones as uh, for latrines and I mean desecrated it was like and when Israel took over and th- this is the reality Jews and Muslims and Christians are able to worship and able to to do it in peace and unless they start fighting <laughs> you know so it's one of the ongoing challenges we have yeah Yeah. And in 2020, you know, it'll depend on what happens between now and then, whether it's an issue. The issue could just disappear, not an issue, you know. Yeah, it'll take a while. You know, I mean, I, I things. The Middle East is such a wonderfully crazy, complex place that, on the one hand, everything changes in a heartbeat, and nothing changes <laughs> forever. <laughs> so, you know, everything like that I'll suddenly. Look, Israel in '67 war. Look how big it was. Sinai big territory. You know, Israel suddenly became this humongous country with all of Sinai and in a heartbeat gave it back. You know, in a heartbeat, literally turned around and said, here, kicked out, they had settlements there, kicked people out, said, you got to go. Had oil there, kicked people out, gave all of Sinai back to Egypt, you know. Hmm? Egypt has lost control of Sinai. Yeah, now it's ISIS. But, you know, so Israel may go in and take it over again. I don't know what Israel's going to do if they care. But uh, we'll see. Um, so, you know, f- I mean, you're 100% correct. It's like it's about leadership from the top. You know, the right leaders that show up at the top 
can change everything in a heartbeat, can change everything. Because every poll has shown that the majority of Palestinians and the majority of Israelis want to have a peace agreement and expect there to be a two-state solution so far. You know, not everybody, but the majority of them, if, if somebody made a, said yes already, plus I said yes to the same thing, it would happen. And it could happen as quickly as that happened. Could just happen because everybody. I mean, they don't have to invent it anew. Everybody knows, you know, whether it's this border here or maybe it's going to be over here. Is all right. So you know, whether this town's going to be part of it or not, there'll be a little negotiation. But it's pretty clear because it's a really small area. <laughs> There's not a lot to argue about. You know where it is. You know, it's and you know what the big settlements are, and you know, you know. So that could happen in a heartbeat. I don't expect it to happen as long as. Netanyahu is the prime minister of Israel, I don't think, you know. And so far he's been there out longer than anybody ever, you know, and he could keep being there. Um, I don't know. but And I don't know who's on the horizon. But those things change in a, in a moment, you know. You know, that's the one thing I know for sure. The one thing I'm certain about about politics is there's no certainty. That, you know, and, and coming up and with any election, the one thing I learned for sure in my short life is you can't predict anything. You know, you never know what's going to happen. And, and sometimes you're wonderfully surprised in a wonderful way. You know, so someday, someday the Messiah is going to show up. Someday. Someday the Messiah is going to show up. Someday the Messiah is going to show up. It'll either be their version or my version. In my version, the right person is going to end up in the job of Prime Minister of Israel. In, the, in my version, the right person is going to end up being in charge of running the Palestinian Authority, wherever that might be. In my version, the Messiah is going to show up. They're going to go, let's end this already. Let's get on with life and like... You know, because I, I've always, I'm a, I'm a Bob Dylan believer. So, you know, when I think of the Palestinians, I think of Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan, one of his famous phrases, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. So I've always said that the more they have to lose, the more they'll be likely to be in peace in the Middle East. You've got to keep giving them things to lose. And, you know, and to me, my faith, one of these days, the Messiah is going to show up. It won't be coming from heaven. I only some person, people who are going to be the right kind of leaders, who are going to inspire people to be able to make those kinds of sacrifices, those kinds of choices, those kinds of decisions. You know, and those people show up in history and have shown up over and over again in history at different times. And that's what we need, you know, because I mean, I agree that people are ready. People are longing. People are like sick and tired of this. It's scary for everybody. Everybody loses. You know, yeah, life is better here and than it is there and whatever. And the economy may be good and Israelis create all kinds of this amazing stuff. I mean, it's amazing what Israel creates, you know. But they're all living with a guillotine over their heads all the time, too. More and more, we're starting to feel that way. People blowing themselves up or missiles or whatever. I mean, Israel's pretty good at defending itself. But, you know, you can't defend yourself here or there against a guy in a car who decides he wants to just turn onto the sidewalk. You know, there's no way of anybody defending themselves against a guy who decides to run you down. You know, there's no way. You can have the best security in the world. You can't stop that. You know, you can maybe stop bombs if you can figure out how to sniff out bombs or whatever. But you can't stop a guy in a car from ter- driving on the sidewalk. Can't do it. So, you know, or the people from stabbing people walking around and just suddenly stabbing somebody. You know, there's just no way to demilitarize every human being that in that way. Unless, of course, you're in 
Australia where they just banned guns and nobody has guns anymore. And that's like, a, but you need a little tiny homogenous community that helps to be able to do that, which they did. In any event, time's up. Um, time flies when I talk a lot to me. You're all asleep, but for me, it's been... So, um, but this is an ongoing drama. And, and the really the only reason I wrote these is because there's multiple players here that have a stake and they have different stakes in this issue. And, uh, and it remains to be seen whether another president would say, no, we're not going to move, assuming it hasn't moved yet. I mean, they could just declare that there's a consulate in, in Jerusalem. They could just declare at the embassy tomorrow if they wanted to. One last thing I wanted to say, it's really where you started, yeah. was that there's a tremendous number of Jewish organizations that have supported this. Oh, yeah. And I mean, mainstream, you know, from the Jewish Federations of North America oh, yeah. to the ADL. I was going to read them all, but I won't. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, while we can focus, and I'm no Trump supporter, and I'm not here to defend them, but if he does something which you think is good, you know, I think we ought to give credit. You may not think it's good, but just because a lot of countries in the world express reservations, um, you know, trusting other countries in the world in the UN with respect to their opinion on how Israel's treated, you know. Yeah, well, that's not going to happen. Right. Uh, look, this is uh, this is something that the Jewish. That's why I read, started out by reading Jonathan Sachs's statement about Jerusalem, because that seems to me to be sort of the uh, a beautifully articulated statement of how Jews think about Jerusalem and its role. It's always been the source of our spiritual center in history, and uh, and and it has only served ever in all of its history as a capital of a Jewish country. <laughs> so, you know, and here, and both in ancient times and in modern times, it's only been a capital, contrary to what it said in Al Jazeera, it was never the capital of Palestine, of, of what they mean by Palestine, of a, as if there was a, a capital of a Palestine. It was capital of our Palestine. When we were Palestinians, as Golda Meir said, I'm the Palestinian, you know, which is a whole different thing because of the Philistines. It's where Palestine where it came from, from the Philistines. So, um, in any event, thank you for coming. Nice of you to come. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we will see you soon. Well. <laughs>